Well, thanks so much for that introduction, Clark. Um, it's great to be with all of you this evening. Um, Libri is, is near and dear to our hearts. Um, we've really benefited tremendously from the ministry of Libri ourselves, and it's a privilege to, to be here this evening to share a little bit about um, my own field of sociology. Um, so I've titled this lecture, Sociology, Friend or Foe of the Church. Um, and as many of you might be aware, sociology as a discipline um, has, I think, become a little bit more influential in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, a number of the kind of ideas and theories and studies <clears throat> that emerged within this academic field of sociology um, has started entering the mainstream, um, maybe particularly around questions of gender and race and class. Um, a lot of sociological ideas um, are now present in um, sort of public conversation um, and how we talk, how we think about educational curriculum and family life and justice and all sorts of other issues. So I think it's an important one um, for, for Christians to, to understand a little bit about what this field is, what it's trying to do, um, and how we as Christians can, um, uh, can engage constructively uh, with the discipline of, of sociology. So to start off, um, this is a quote from John Stackhouse, um, who is a theologian at Regent College, where John and I are now studying. He says, we recognize, however, that sociologists have often offered themselves as secular prophets, as alternatives, in fact, to churches' preachers. Indeed, sociologists and prophets offer the same potent combination, a presentation of the way things are, a prediction of the way things will be, and a prescription of what we should therefore be doing. Sociologists have claimed the authority of scientific observation and inference. Preachers have claimed the authority of scriptural exegesis and application. Thus, sociology has often stood as rival, not companion, to Christian teaching. So in this lecture, um, what I hope to do is basically give you a little bit of a sense of what sociology is as a discipline. Um, and then to think about, okay, how, how can sociology be useful to the church and where can the church speak into sociology? Um, first of all, are there any fellow sociologists in the room out of curiosity? Or anybody who's taken a class in sociology at some point in their lives? Okay, <laughs> great, a few people. Um, so to some of you, some of this might be a little bit familiar, um, but hopefully there will be some, some ideas for all of us to, to engage in. So to start with the history, um, sociology is a thoroughly modern discipline. Um, so unlike philosophy or mathematics, which have been around for ages, um, sociology didn't actually become an academic discipline until the 19th century. Um, and it was very much um, in response uh, to the challenge of modernity um, that sociology arose. Um, these are three guys who are considered um, sort of the founding fathers of sociology. You might recognize the guy over there, Karl Marx, um, with his signature beard. And we've got Max Weber in the middle and um, Emile Durkheim um, over on this. So these are three. Um, key figures in getting sociology started um, as a field in Europe. And basically, um, what they were concerned about is the fact that modernity was leading to these absolutely enormous social changes in Europe. 
um, you know, huge urbanization, um, industrialization, um, growth of bureaucracies and capitalism, um, people moving from the countryside to the cities, all of these huge, you know, social transformations. And these guys were prompted to think about, um, okay, you know, what, what's the impact of these enormous social changes on people's lives? Um, you know, how are people finding meaning um, in the midst of all this change and dislocation? Um, how are people maintaining kind of social cohesion um, as they're migrating, as they're changing jobs? Um, how are people finding a sort of moral basis um, as people are also secularizing rapidly? Um, so these are kind of some of the big questions um, that prompted the whole field of sociology to start, led by these three guys. Um, so what do sociologists actually study? Um, all things social <laughs> is the, um, the brief answer to that question. Um, so as you can imagine, it's a very broad field, right? Um, so sociologists study uh, dynamics of social groups, um, we study social contexts, you know, people's families, neighborhoods, schools, religious institutions. Um, we study kind of micro-level interactions between people, um, as well as sort of large-scale uh, social phenomenon, things like political systems, cultural change. Um, so everything social. Um, sociologists are very interested in what people think, what people feel, what people do um, and why. And because it's so broad, um, you know, sociologists tend to specialize in particular fields. So I, for example, <clears throat> have specialized in religion, race, and inequality. Those are my kind of three sub areas. Um, I have colleagues who are, say, a sociologist of education or a sociologist of healthcare, um, sociologists of criminal justice. Um, so people tend to specialize within particular kind of areas of social life um, and dig in. So how do sociologists study these things? Um, we don't just sort of, you know, sit in our chairs and philosophize. Um, one thing that characterizes sociology is um, a strong commitment to data. Sociologists love data about people. Um, we want to know the, the sort of concrete realities of people's lives. Um, and we want to do that in, in a systematic way. So not just sort of picking on a couple of anecdotes of our friends, <laughs> but trying to, to kind of systematically gather information. Um, and so that some people do that by surveys or analysis of census data, um, administrative data. <clears throat> Other people do things like face-to-face -face interviews. Um, or something called ethnography. And um, that's a method where you, as a researcher, you sort of immerse yourself within a particular um, community or um, church or school. Um, and you stay there for say, you know, a couple of years and you really get to know um, both by participating and observing um, what social life is like in that, in that space. So there's a lot of different ways um, that sociologists can gather data. Um, but we're not just interested in sort of the, the ground level reality. Um, sociologists are also very interested in, in theory. And basically what that means um, is we're trying to figure out sort of bigger patterns um, that explain, you know, why people do the things that they do. And um, obviously there's a kind of two-way relationship between theory and data. 
Um, you might come up with some kind of idea that you think um, explains human behavior. And then as you gather more data, you have to kind of tweak that you know, as you go along. Um, so that's basically in a, in a nutshell, um, you know, how sociologists do the work that we do. Um, I personally um, do a lot of, of interviews. That's sort of my main methodological tool. Um, but I've also done ethnography and also used um, survey data in my own work. I think it's also worth saying um, that again, you know, sociology is very broad. Not all sociologists think alike. Um, and there's within sociology, there's kind of three main streams, um, which we refer to as positivist, um, interpretive, and critical. Um, so the folks in the positivist camp are much more similar um, to the people working in the natural sciences. Um, so these are people who really, they want to find kind of similar to how natural scientists want to find laws that govern the natural world. Um, folks, sociologists who are positivists want to find laws that govern social relationships. Um, so they're really into like, you know, testing hypotheses, identifying causal relationships, um, and generally using quantitative methods, experiments, surveys, that sort of thing. Um, then there's uh, something called the interpretive stream, um, which I would probably place myself in, the kind of work that I do. And this goes back to Max Weber, uh, one of those three dudes I showed you earlier. <clears throat> and interpretive sociologists are much more interested in how people make meaning. Um, so sort of, you know, things like, okay, how does participating in a church um, help people to make sense of their lives? Or, you know, why do people join um, social movements like Extinction Rebellion? What sort of meaning um, are they finding in terms of their, their identity, <clears throat> you know, their sense of purpose, their social location um, through these different social spheres? And then the last one um, is known as the, the critical stream. And this goes back to Karl Marx. <coughs> and critical sociology um, is much more focused on issues of, of power dynamics um, and tend to also be very interested in questions of, of justice um, and activism. Um, so, so critical sociologists are interested um, not just in analyzing social behavior, but then in, in using their analysis um, to fuel action. And I think um, from my experience, um, I think in, in Christian circles, sometimes critical sociology might be the one that we're most familiar with. Um, critical sociology maybe gets the most sort of public attention because it has that sort of revolutionary streak in it. Um, maybe sometimes there's a kind of a false assumption that sociology is totally Marxist and sort of only interested in dismantling institutions, revolutionary change, um, but that's not the case. So that, that sort of critical stream is just one dimension um, of the broader field of sociology. So that's sort of sociology 101 <laughs> in a few minutes. Um, and in this lecture, I wanna focus on two main ideas from sociology. 
Um, now, again, you know, sociology has produced lots of different theories, methods, ideas. Um, but two of the kind of dominant themes that, you know, you find expressed in lots of different sociological research <clears throat> are number one, the social construction of reality. And secondly, uh, structural determinants of individual behavior. So I'm going to take both of those big ideas in turn, sort of explain, you know, what are they? Uh, you know, to what extent do they align with biblical teaching? Um, what can we as a church learn from these ideas? Um, and maybe what do we need to, to speak into these ideas to critique them um, from a Christian perspective? So first of all, the social construction of reality. Have people heard this phrase, this idea of reality being socially constructed? Yeah, I'm seeing some, some nods. Okay, so this theory uh, in sociology is largely traced um, to a particular book by um, Berger and Luckman published in 1966, which was called The Social Construction of Reality. So sort of seminal text um, still assigned in lots of sociology classes. And the basic idea um, behind the social construction of reality is that human beings are social, creative <laughs> creatures, um, and we, we desire order and meaning in our lives. And so, you know, over the course of history, um, we have invented all sorts of things, ideas, practices, ways of arranging people, um, political systems that help us to bring order and meaning uh, to our lives. And Peter Berger would say, <clears throat> you know, that this is what distinguishes human beings from animals. Um, he would say that, you know, animals are essentially driven by instinct, right? Animals' lives are biologically determined. Uh, they're born, they eat, they mate, they migrate, they die. Um, they don't really sort of existentially reflect, <laughs> you know, on those particular tasks in their lives. They're not, the honeybees aren't sort of, um, you know, debating amongst themselves about what form of government is most um, efficient uh, in the hive. Um, you know, beavers aren't going to architecture school to learn new postmodern techniques. Uh, it's just not something that animals do, right? Their lives <clears throat> are biologically determined. Um, and so Berger would say that, you know, what's unique to being human, um, he uses, he actually uses the phrase, we're biologically unfinished we actually enter the world very vulnerable, right? We need clothes. We need people to sort of educate us over a very long period of time. Um, and we have to come up with all these kind of things just to, just to sort of survive, just to make our lives livable. And so the idea is that, um, you know, a lot of what characterizes our human life um, is not stuff that's biologically given. Um, you know, it's not determined by sort of universal laws. Um, and nor, you know, as I'll get to later, is it necessarily, um, you know, biblically given. Um, and so I'll give a few examples of this in a second here, um, but I'll just briefly tell you the kind of um, the outlines of this theory. Um, so Berger and Luckman use these three terms of externalization, objectivation, and internalization. Um, basically what they mean Externalization is this phase where human beings sort of 
spit out a new idea into the world. Uh, let's say democracy, for example, right? This is not something that's biologically determined about how human beings should organize ourselves. It's a human invention. Um, so externalization refers to this idea kind of being thrown out in the world. Objectivation, that second stage, is about um, that idea of democracy then taking concrete reality in the world, right? It's not just a sort of concept anymore, um, but then it gets manifested in um, voting laws, in voting booths, in certain kind of principles and procedures. Um, it takes on a kind of an actual reality um, in the social world. <clears throat> and then the final stage is internalization. And this refers to the fact that when these kind of social things have, have been birthed, have taken on form in the world, um, they then kind of act back on us as human beings. They actually then shape the way that we think um, and become sort of default and natural to us. Um, so, you know, for me as an American, um, you know, having been born into this democratic system, um, you know, I've been, I've been socialized in, in terms of democratic norms. I sort of take it for granted that that's how um, the, the government of my country works. Um, I sort of assume that I should have the particular rights <clears throat> associated with democracy. Um, and so the idea of internalization is that, you know, as generations go by, um, this thing that human beings have created, we start to take as natural, as for granted. Um, and we don't sort of daily think about the fact that it wasn't always this way or that somebody invented this. Um, so that's what they kind of mean um, by this process of externalization, objectivation, <clears throat> internalization. And the key thing here is that, you know, it, it's social. It can't just be sort of one person in their basement, <laughs> you know, thinking something up. Um, there has to be kind of collective buy-in in this process. So to make this more concrete, let me give a couple <clears throat> quick examples of social constructions. Um, so the U.S.-Canada border, right? <clears throat> um, did God ordain this particular line? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, we've got some dissent to the room. Um, is this does this red line sort of appear in in the in the ground in the forest? Has, has somebody sort of seen seen this <laughs> biologically, naturalistically determined? Um, no, this is sort of um, this is a human construction, right? It is not. This is not a given in nature. It's not a given in the created order. Um, so we could say that uh, the border is something that, you know, the first stage, it's externalized. It's, it's sort of come up with as the idea of where to divide these territories. Um, but then, you know, it, it matters, right? It, bec it becomes objectivated. It actually takes concrete form because then you have border crossings you have um, officers, you have passports. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, depending on, on whether you're born a few feet on this side or this side, um, your life actually has very different reality, right? In terms of your citizenship, your voting rights, your sense of identity. So even though it's a completely arbitrary line, um, it takes on this sort of external social power. And then again, if you're born on either side of that line, um, you grow up having a particular identity that perhaps you take for granted. You didn't choose it, um, but you've been sort of 
socialize into something that generations before you was constructed. Um, another example uh, that we're all probably very familiar with, you know, why is it that boys wear blue and girls wear pink? Again, you know, are, are boys sort of biologically inclined towards blue? Um, you know, do all women in the world sort of look better in pink? Um, no, <laughs> this, is, this is another social construction. Um, I don't know the full history. I think it's something about post-World War II. Um, there was some sort of fashion designer marketing campaign that suggested that, you know, pink was feminine and blue is masculine and, and it sort of stuck. But, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't always been that way. Um, I understand that, like, in Victorian England, um, pink was considered a great color for, for men, right? So this is another example of um, uh, something that human beings have, have created, but then, but then has sort of taken on this concrete reality. And now, you know, if you're going to a baby shower and you know it's a boy, you'll probably <laughs> buy something blue and I'm not going to think twice about it. Um, briefly, a couple other examples. So... Um, you know, language and, and body language are also human constructions, right? I mean, why, why does this necessarily convey that something is good? You know, there's no, there's no kind of objective correlation between this, you know, use of my body and something being good, right? This is, this is a symbol that human beings have come up with to communicate that. Um, and it's also something that varies between cultures. Um, I understand that in Greece, it's actually quite a rude gesture. <laughs> um, Similarly with eye contact, you know, as, as an American, I'm, you know, I'm socialized into the idea that, that eye contact um, communicates, you know, confidence, respect, engagement. Um, but when I grew up in Japan, uh, it's actually extremely disrespectful to make sort of intensive um, eye contact with somebody, especially if they're your, your superior. Um, so again, you know, these, these things are, um, they're sort of arbitrary. They're not um, they're not biologically determined. Um, they haven't been, you know, the same in every culture at all times. Um, they're things, they're just conventions um, that humans create at, at different points um, to sort of ease our interactions <clears throat> with other people. So those are just, um, I mean, I, the list goes on, but those are just a few quick examples of the ways in which um, human beings sort of construct different practices, ways of thinking, institutions, um, that then just become normal and we, we take them for granted in our daily lives. So a first question about this is, um, you know, is, is this idea of the social construction of reality at odds with scripture? I think sometimes I, I've heard Christians talk about this notion of social construction as sort of antithetical to the idea um, that God has created an objective reality. Um, the idea of, of human beings constructing reality, does that, have some, does that somehow communicate um, that you know, God is out of the picture um, or that there's nothing objectively real in the world? Um, and I don't think we necessarily have to pit them um, against each other quite like that. Um, now, of course, you know, there, there can be an extreme view of social constructivism, which I'll talk about later. Um, but I just want to reflect briefly on um, what scripture might have to say about this particular idea. So in the Genesis account, um, God 
says to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, right? That's sort of a, a biological mandate. <clears throat> but he also commands them to, to subdue and order the earth, right? Um, which necessarily means that human beings are going to have to come up with, you know, gardening tools, ways of organizing their labor, um, all, all sorts of things that are going to help them actually do that task. Um, and God doesn't predetermine those things. He actually gives human beings a lot of freedom um, in what he invites us to do. And the very first example of social construction, I would say, um, is when God invites Adam to name the animals, right? Um, basically, in this scene, you know, God invites Adam to be a, to be a co-creator with him. Um, God chooses not to predetermine the names of all the animals, um, but he gives Adam the freedom to do that. And language is, you know, is an incredibly powerful form of, of constructing reality, of conveying meaning and value. And uh, God entrusts that to Adam. Um, so Adam invents these things right, right, right from the get-go. He invents the names of these animals, and God seems very happy with that. So I think the basic idea here is, yes, um, you know, we as, as, as Christians affirm that there is um, an objective reality in the world, um, that God is the creator of the overall form. Um, but within that, God gives tremendous freedom um, to human beings as his co-creators. Um, and uh, human beings are free to come up with all kinds of things, you know, not just names for animals, um, but later, you know, forms of, of architecture and music and governance. Um, in Exodus, we have Moses's father-in-law suggesting that he um, uh, appoint judges for sort of subgroups of people, right? And so that's, that's an example of a, of a social construction of sort of in the administrative category, right? So God, again, God doesn't determine these things for us. Um, he gives us enormous freedom to, in fact, engage in the process of social construction. Um, so on that level, I think as Christians, you know, we can affirm, yes, there's a lot of reality that is socially constructed. And it's actually something that God invites us to do. It's, it's an honor um, that human beings have in sort of creating culture. Let's see. Um, I'm going to run through these examples a bit quickly. So another thing um, that sociologists are concerned about um, is kind of getting underneath social constructions, right? So social constructions, like I said before, they end up being things that we kind of take for granted um, in our daily lives, in our interactions. Um, but what sociologists are interested in is, okay, how did this construction emerge? Um, who perhaps influenced the emergence of this particular um, you know, concept or definition of reality um, and who stands to benefit um, or lose out from this particular definition of reality. And one um, you know, extremely powerful social construction um, that has had a, a huge impact um, on societies around the world is that of, of race. And again, you know, race is a social construction because um, it does not have a basis in biology, um, nor does it have a basis in scripture. Um, now, when I say it doesn't have a basis in biology, 
yes, there is genetic variation between human beings, but those variations do not map on to the racial categories that we use in any given national context. Um, these are categories that were invented. Um, and in fact, the language of race, you know, if you trace it historically, um, became prominent um, in the colonial era, right? So when we, when sociologists ask the question, okay, how did this category, um, this, this construction come to be? We trace it back historically to the colonial era, um, essentially when you know, the European colonizers sought justification um, for their exploitation of, of peoples and their lands. And so that's when we see this sort of pseudoscience around race emerge um, that, that categorizes people basically in, in these kind of categories that I have on the screen here. Um, so race is a way of kind of distinguishing people, you know, based on physical characteristics and then placing people into a, into a hierarchy. Um, so the modern conception of race um, has placed white people at the top, black people on the bottom and um, other races in the middle. And when you ask the question, okay, who, who benefits or loses from these categories? Um, it's a fairly obvious answer in this case that um, you know, the white European uh, colonizers and slave owners um, were the ones who stood to benefit from this particular way of defining people, of categorizing people. Um, and everybody else, and especially black people, um, were the ones to lose out from this, this way of defining reality. Um, so this is an example of <clears throat> a social construct uh, that has had extremely negative impact, right? I mean, not all social contracts are bad. You know, things like thumbs up, you know, that's pretty neutral. Mm. Clothing, I mean, most of these things, most social constructions, we just kind of need to get on, <clears throat> you know, with our regular lives. Um, but certain um, concepts that humans have come up with um, have had a profoundly negative impact as well. And again, you know, going back to the Berger and Luckman framework, of um, you know, externalization, objectivation, internalization. The thing that the powerful thing about race <clears throat> as, a, as, a, as a construct is we've deeply internalized it, right? It hasn't just remained this poster. It's actually um, you know, fundamentally shaped nations, uh, you know, legal systems, economic systems, voting patterns, <clears throat> you know, criminal justice, um, and it shaped our very, our psychology, right? Our assumptions about people. Um, we've internalized um, some of these stereotypes. So even though race, you could say, you know, it's, it's fake, <laughs> it's, it's, a social, it's a social construct. It has profound uh, consequences for people's lives. Um, and so the, the, the tools of sociology um, and this whole idea of social construction help us to kind of get underneath this category, understand where it's come from um, and who stands to benefit from it. Um, so there's always, you know, sociologists are interested um, in questions of, of power. And obviously um, the person who, who creates a, a label, you know, whether that's Adam creating a label for animals or a colonizer creating labels for race, um, that confers enormous power on that person to, to name something as such. Now, um, a, a different kind of example. So within the church, um, and here, you know, I'm, um, 
I'm speaking from an American context, so you can tell me later to what extent um, you know this might not map on to a Canadian context. Um, but you know, within within the church itself, we have all kinds of social constructions as well, um, some of which we may not be even aware of. <clears throat> and one example is um, our sort of concept of what it is to be a good pastor, right? That that is a a social construction. And um, in the American context, um, some of the traits uh, perhaps that we assume um, characterize a good pastor are somebody who is um, entrepreneurial, who's charismatic, uh, who's media savvy, um, who's extroverted, assertive. Um, Right, for a lot of Americans who have grown up in, in church, those are some of the traits that we assume uh, define a good pastor. So a sociologist in that setting would ask, um, where did that idea come from? You know, why, why is that the social construction of, of a good pastor in the, in the American Christian mind? Um, you know, do those traits come from the Bible, for example? Um, I would argue no. <laughs> in a sort of list of qualifications for elders, um, you know, being <clears throat> entrepreneurial and assertive and extroverted are not, not the top of the list. So then the question is, where did these things come from? <clears throat> and, you know, sociologists would say, well, um, you know, a number of those values are, are part of sort of broader American ideals um, and specifically part of um, sort of American kind of corporate business ideals, right? A lot of these traits um, that are assumed to, um, to define a good pastor are in fact the same traits uh, that people assign to CEOs, right? Um, and so again, you know, the, the tools of sociology, well, yeah, help to kind of get underneath, um, these, these concepts that we might take for granted. <clears throat> Cause again, you know, if you, if, if you've grown up, um, in one of these churches, um, and this is the kind of leadership that you have, um, you've seen, you've experienced, you've heard praised, um, you've been socialized into, you, you sort of take it for granted, um, that that's what it means um, to be a good pastor. And so it requires, you know, either moving between settings or you um, sort of applying this tool of social construction um, to perhaps begin to, to critique things that even in church culture um, are not necessarily, you know, biblically uh, defined, but are in fact um, social cultural products. Right. <clears throat> so those are um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of, um, you know, what the, the concept of social constructionism is trying to achieve and a couple of examples to illustrate that. And I think for the church, um, again, it's, it's important not to see social construction as the enemy or, or some idea that's sort of antithetical um, to Christian teaching. Um, I think it is actually a very powerful uh, partial truth. Um, and that if, you know, we want to embody a biblical witness in our society, um, we actually need to understand how we ourselves um, have been shaped by social constructions within our, within our social groups, within our cultures. Because um, if we fail to do that, we do end up, you know, conflating what we understand as Christian uh, with just our own social cultural preferences um, and we mistake things that are actually social constructions for things that are creational givens. Um, so again, in the case of a pastor, 
uh, we might sort of assume, okay, this is the right way to do it um, without realizing that we've been, you know, profoundly shaped by these broader um, preferences within our, within our culture. But social construction is not a perfect, <laughs> it's not a perfect concept. Um, so what, what can the church say? Um, there is a, a form of social constructionism that, that is taken to the extreme, right? Um, there is a form of social constructionism that basically says there is no objective reality. Um, you know, there are no sort of external truths that we can actually know. Um, so reality is 100% what you make of it. Um, and I see, I think, you know, we see this probably most prominently right now um, in the discussion of, of gender, right? Um, this idea that, you know, I can, I have total freedom um, to construct my identity, my, my gender identity, that has no correlation to any kind of, you know, biological or biblical given. Um, and so I think that, you know, Christians, we need to push back on that extreme version of social constructionism. Um, and to assert that, yes, human beings have tremendous freedom um, within God's creation, um, but we do have freedom within this, this larger form that God has given to us. Um, you know, going back to thinking about Adam and Eve in the garden, um, you know, yes, they were given creativity. <clears throat> yes, they were given opportunities to steward. Um, but that was very much, you know, in the context of God being the creator <clears throat> and God instituting certain patterns um, that do have to be taken seriously that are not um, up for grabs from a social constructivist perspective. Um, so even if we think about, you know, the language of Genesis 1 itself, um, you know, God does not say, um, you know, black and white, I created them. Um, he does not say, you know, rich and poor, I created them. Um, he does not say, but he does say, you know, male and female that he created um, and so those are categories that are biblically affirmed and are therefore uh, meaningful and, and not up for grabs from a social constructionist perspective. Um, you know, we could say something similar about patterns of, of rest, right? Um, you might know that during the French Revolution, um, they decided to have a 10-day week rather than a seven-day week. Um, it didn't work out <laughs> very well. They rejected it pretty soon. Um, and, you know, we, we, as, a, as Christians, we can say, well, um, you know, the, the Bible actually does give us patterns of work and rest um, that, are, that are good and that recognize, um, you know, our human limitations um, and that we need to, to honor um, if we want to be, um, you know, if we want to live as God designed us to. Um, and so that's, you know, that's not something we can't sort of socially construct ourselves to be, you know, machines that can work all the time just with smarter technology, um, that that actually violates a creation given that is, a, that is a good thing, that's a gift um, to be preserved and enjoyed. Um, and of course, you know, scripture also gives us particular um, moral principles that are, that are given, that are not, not up for grabs, um, that should guide our processes of social construction. Um, so yes, we continue to create, um, you know, through, through language and art and medicine and technology, all these areas, you know, God is happy for us to create in, but as long as they are, um, you know, submitted to the authority of God's principles of the dignity of human beings, of righteousness, of justice, 
um, of beauty of these sort of creational um, givens. So I think um, all that to say that there, you know, there are good things from, from the theory of social construction that Christians can, can use, can embrace, um, can actually use sometimes to critique our own lives, our own churches. Um, but there's also really important areas um, for Christians to be speaking back into the culture about um, the kind of the, the forms that God has given us um, in which we exercise our freedom. Right, more briefly on um, social. So, so social construction of reality is the first big idea and uh, the power of social structures over individual behavior is another just kind of overarching theme and even sort of assumption uh, within sociology, which um, pushes back against <laughs> a kind of dominant narrative that we have certainly um, in the West, maybe most acutely in America, um, that, you know, I can be uh, whoever I want to be. Um, you know, I am a, I'm a free individual. Uh, my, my destiny is, is completely in my own hands. Um, you know, as long as I dream big enough dreams, work hard enough, um, you know, I can be whoever I want to be. I can, I can climb the ladder to success. Um, you know, the American dream or whatever dream um, can be mine. This very kind of individualistic, um, meritocratic ideal um, that we have in the West and maybe particularly um, in the United States. And um, sociology pu pushes back generally um, against that sort of hyper-individualistic idea um, by placing a lot of emphasis on the ways that our individual choices um, and the kind of trajectories of our lives are profoundly shaped um, by the social structures that we're part of. And that includes you know, our families, <clears throat> our neighborhoods, our schools, our citizenship, our churches, um, that we're not nearly sort of you know, free <clears throat> and autonomous um, as we might like to think we are. So that's the basic idea that individual behavior. So sociologists, unlike, um, well, no, I don't want to do a straw man here, but <laughs> sociologists, we like to sort of sometimes compare ourselves to uh, psychologists or economists who tend to, and this is a generalization, um, tend to focus more on the sort of individual as the unit of analysis. And they're really interested in individual choices, individual preferences, um, sociologists um, always are looking at the level of the group, the level of the structure, the level of interaction. Um, and you could say that actually in the Bible, you know, this kind of structural perspective is very obvious. Um, and that's partly because the Bible was written in a pre-modern era, right? Um, where everybody had a much more kind of collective sense um, of their own identity and fate in the world. Um, so just, you know, some very basic examples of this. Um, in ancient Israel, you know, the particular tribe that you were born into, um, you know, dictated where you, where you lived, what, what land was allocated to you. Um, it might also dictate your profession, right? If you were born a Levite, uh, you were a priest. Um, so in the sort of pre-modern era, it's very, it's very natural to think in terms of how these social structures um, shape our individual choices and lives. 
Um, you know, another major theme that we see in scripture is the reality of um, multi-generational impacts of sin, right? We think of uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, um, uh, sinning with Bathsheba and killing her husband. Um, you know, those things don't just affect David. <laughs> they actually lead to enormous dysfunction within his entire family um, for generations. Um, or we think of, you know, the sin of Jeroboam, who uh, created, um, you know, idolatrous worship in Israel, which led to, you know, generations of kings screwing up and um, leading to bad outcomes for the nation. Um, so I think, you know, from a kind of biblical worldview, it's sort of almost quite obvious um, that, you know, the families that we're part of, the communities that we're part of, um, you know, profoundly shape us as, as individuals and and through time. Um, and even Jesus of Nazareth, you know, he uh, was profoundly shaped by being a Jewish man, right? Um, he was a carpenter because his dad was a carpenter. The ways that he taught and spoke um, were very much shaped by the fact that he, um, you know, learned from, from rabbis and was part of a part of the synagogue. Um, so um, I think, yeah, prob probably for those of us who are on this side of the enlightenment and very shaped by individualist thinking, you know, sometimes a structural push is, is a challenge, but actually for, for much of human history, um, it was, it was understood that the structures you're part of, um, significantly shape your own, your own life. Now, um, I'll just give a couple of <clears throat> quick examples of this. Um, this is, you might recognize Emile Durkheim. Um, one of the founding fathers of sociology. He, in 1897, um, he did this sort of, at the time, a sort of landmark study on uh, suicide. Um, so at the time, and you know, maybe even to some extent now, um, you know, people might think of suicide as a, as a very personal act, um, a very, um, you know, something that's driven primarily by sort of individual psychology. Um, but Durkheim, you know, based on the, the kind of data he had available to him at the time, uh, he found that there's actually, you know, there's significant variation in rates of suicide between different social groups. Um, so he found that, you know, it's much higher amongst men than among women, um, and much higher amongst Protestants than amongst Catholics. Um, and so he theorized that actually... Um, you know, rather than, um, you know, suicide being predicted by just purely sort of individual, um, you know, mental health or individual choice, um, that actually the likelihood of suicide um, is correlated with a person's degree of social integration and their degree of moral regulation. Um, basically just means <clears throat> that, you know, people who are relationally well-connected, integrated, um, or people who have maybe more kind of moral responsibilities or demands on their lives um, are less likely to commit suicide. Um, so at the time, this was a, this was a kind of landmark study. Um, maybe for us now, his findings feel sort of obvious. Um, and that probably is because, you know, his, his thinking, um, his, his insight into some of the social determinants of suicide have actually then, um, you know, they've gained a lot of traction, right? We, we, we're probably aware that, um, you know, suicide prevention programs focus a lot on sort of relational integration um, of people now. And that's 
but you know, before this study, people weren't thinking in these terms. Um, so this is kind of one very, very early example um, of the way that sociology sort of tapped into these, um, you know, structural realities <clears throat> about human behavior and said, okay, we can't just be focusing on, on individual people. We need to think about the social structures that they are a part of. Um, a second, you know, basically, so there's, there's a number of sociologists um, who focus specifically on uh, the family um, and the ways in which, again, our sort of individual um, experiences of life and our outcomes are still, you know, profoundly shaped to our families. You know, no matter how kind of free we want to think that we are, you know, I can be whoever I want to be, define my destiny. Um, the reality is um, that our, our parents sort of uh, choices, um, lifestyle are hugely significant determinants of where we each end up in our own lives. Um, so there's lots of data showing that um, a child's, so the level of education that they reach <clears throat> or the income they generate um, is very closely correlated um, to their parents' level of education or income. Um, there's also lots of data showing that, um, you know, kids who um, grow up in um, married two-parent homes um, that they end up with, with much better sort of mental health outcomes, um, physical health outcomes, um, stability in their own relationships as, as adults. Um, so again, you know, all of these <clears throat> studies, they do challenge this kind of core Western ideal of the, the totally autonomous individual who shapes their own destiny just by dreaming big dreams and working hard. Um, you know, the, the research of sociologists consistently shows, um, you know, that whether it's family or religious community, school, neighborhood, um, that these are hugely influential in shaping the way that we think, uh, the choices that we make, how we're treated, and um, the course in our lives take. So what are the implications um, for the church of this kind of structural emphasis within sociology? Um, I'm not gonna say a whole lot on this. I'll just say that um, I think there's still a tendency, at least in a lot of Western evangelical churches um, to approach mission and discipleship in quite an individualistic way. Um, you know, an emphasis on kind of one-to-one -one, uh, discipleship or, you know, changing individual beliefs, um, you know, winning over individual hearts and minds, um, you know, teaching the right thing to individual people, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one evangelism, these kinds of things. Um, so a lot of our sort of, you know, strategies and methods and approaches um, very much, you know, treat people as, as isolated individuals. Um, and of course, there's a place for, you know, individual relationships, conversations, discipleship. Um, but I think, you know, the, the insights of sociology about how, how socially shaped we are um, should push our churches to actually think a bit more holistically in, in how we do mission and discipleship and think about, okay, we're not just trying to reach and nurture individual people, um, but we actually, we need to think about how are we building, nurturing, discipling families? Um, you know, how are we <clears throat> nurturing and investing in our local neighborhood 
um, such that this physical place um, is a place where people can can flourish and have positive relationships and live out their their faith. Um, you know, how are we <clears throat> investing in our local schools where our kids are, you know, profoundly influenced by their their teachers and peers and, and local norms? Um, you know, how how are we thinking about mission and discipleship in these these institutions that have an enormous um, you know impact um, on our on our children and on people that we're trying to trying to engage. <clears throat> so just one sort of example of this in action. Um, when we were in the UK, I, I worked for this organization called Church Urban Fund for a while. And we did this big piece of um, sort of quasi-sociological research where we did um, hundreds of interviews um, and case studies all over England. <clears throat> and the goal of it was to try to understand um, yeah, the relationship between church growth, social action, and discipleship in different communities. Because um, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of language out there about church growth and different strategies and tools. Um, but we wanted to help churches by really sort of grounding it in the reality of what's what's happening in people's lives. Um, so we did all of these interviews to try to understand, okay, in these particular contexts, you say rural contexts, urban contexts, um, affluent contexts, poorer contexts, um, you know, what are the, the particular challenges um, to discipleship in those different kinds of social environments? Um, and how can the church actually concretely, um, you know, shape the ways that we're doing mission and discipleship in those places to actually address those needs? So rather than assuming, um, okay, this, you know, this particular Alpha course or whatever else is just a kind of one size fits all model for every setting. Um, you know, how can we use these sociological tools of, of understanding um, cultural dynamics, family dynamics, neighborhood dynamics that are specific to different churches um, to actually equip churches to respond, um, you know, more concretely to their to their local communities. Um, so on the back of it, we produced a report. We produced a sort of um, a little six-week course, you know, for churches to, to use. Um, and so we felt like, you know, this is a way of kind of applying sociological research, um, you know, applying these insights of the importance of people's social structures um, to help churches actually, um, you know, do evangelism and discipleship um, in more um, informed, targeted, you know, contextual ways. So this is a way that, you know, sociology can help the church not be not be a foe. <laughs> um, this is a bit of a long quote, but I think it's helpful. Um, so this is John Stackhouse again, who I quoted at the beginning. Um, he was the guy who mentioned that, uh, you know, sociology has often been seen as a kind of rival, a sort of secular prophet um, in opposition to the church. Um, but at the end of this article that he writes, uh, he's actually inviting um, Christians to, to learn from the best of, of sociology. And he says, <clears throat> the church possesses a rich tradition <clears throat> that offers a balance between individual and community, freedom and responsibility, a tradition in which love for God and love for neighbor are intricately interwoven. And concern for this world is informed by awareness of the world to come. Such values the church must not only teach, but embody. 
such ideas must come to life in a community in order for them to have their full effect on our confused and erratic cultures. The church, that is, must once again become a social force to protect its members from the assault of other social forces, to link its members so as to draw out the maximum virtue and power of both individuals and the group, to proclaim, to preserve and proclaim its distinctive gospel amid the din of competing messages, and to contribute what grace it can to its neighbors and the worldwide transformational mission of our compassionate God. And so, you know, what he's advocating here um, is that the church perhaps be willing to learn um, from some of these, these tools of sociology and understanding social structures, cultures, contexts, um, and to, to integrate that um, with our own teaching and approach. Now, where can the church challenge sociology in this area? I'll wrap up soon here. Um, so one danger of this very strong structural emphasis in sociology um, is it can sometimes minimize individual agency, right? A kind of extreme version of the emphasis on structure says, okay, you know, people have almost no control over their lives. Um, you know, I as an individual am almost completely determined by these structures that I'm a part of. Um, and I think, yeah, scripture pushes back on that. Again, you know, scripture acknowledges um, that we're shaped by our context, our families, our nations. But at the end of the day, um, scripture very much affirms that we do as individuals have agency, um, you know, even in the midst of the constraints um, that we face, um, that we do make choices and that we are held accountable um, for those choices before God. So we can't just sort of wave our hands and say, oh, you know, because of my family, or because of the, you know, my school experience, um, you know, I had to do this. No, we, we still have um, the capacity to choose. We still have those, um, you know, capacities of the will and our, and our morality. Um, the second danger, I think, um, in, in sociology's emphasis on structure is there can sometimes be an assumption that, um, okay, if we fix social structures, right, if we make our local schools as great as they can be, um, if we get our political system, you know, working as great as it can be, um, if we get our criminal justice system reformed, that then somehow everybody will flourish, um, everybody will behave well, everybody will make right choices. Um, and I think from a biblical perspective, um, that's not true, <laughs> right? Um, I think that scripture does affirm that um, structures matter and that sin gets embedded in structures and we need to work towards improving our the systems we're part of. But um, the biblical understanding of human nature uh, I think complicates some of sociologists' assumptions. Um, the Bible also teaches us that sin, you know, pervades everything that we do. You know, it, it pervades, it corrupts our, our desires, it corrupts our ways of thinking. Um, so even if we get all these public policies and structures right, um, that's not going to eliminate uh, the problem of human sin. Um, so sociology can be a bit naive in that way, in, that, in assuming um, that structural cures will fix people. Um, as Christians, we know that structure is important, but ultimately 
Um, you know, we need the saving work of Christ uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit um, to make us fully whole. Um, and so this is an area where um, I think Christians are, are more realistic about, about human beings, um, where Christian teaching addresses a sort of gap in sociological understanding of human nature. Um, and yeah, something that the church needs to, uh, to speak into sociological analysis and, and policy solutions. So to wrap up here, <clears throat> um, I hope that I've shown <laughs> uh, that sociology as, as, a, as a discipline can offer some useful insights um, into the process of the social construction of reality um, and give us tools for thinking about how social structures do profoundly influence individual behavior. Um, but uh, sociology, it can go too far. Um, can go too far in social construction by just throwing out creational givens saying, you know, we're free to totally invent our reality. Um, and it can go too far in, in minimizing um, individual agency and the reality of sin. Um, and so my hope is that, um, you know, the church would engage with sociology, um, you know, as an influential discipline um, that we wouldn't either, you know, wholesale accept it or wholesale reject it. Um, but that we'd be willing to, um, you know, to take and apply some of the best insights from sociology um, to our mission and discipleship, um, while also offering um, constructive critique um, where sociology does not align with biblical truth. So Stackhouse concludes, sociology, therefore, <clears throat> is a better servant than master. Christians who carefully take up this tool in order to wield it by Christian principles to Christian ends, will continue to find it a valuable gift of God. I'll leave you with that. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yes. Yeah. Can you clarify mm -hmm. the word sociology, where it comes from, hmm. and how is it constructed, and, when, <laughs> and, also, okay. and yeah. also agency? Yes, sure. Okay, time. yeah. So those sure. are critical words. Yes, yeah. They are loaded. They are loaded. I mean, sociology is just, um, you know, the study of social life, basically, um, which again, you know, and it encompasses many different areas of, of culture and, and society. Um, when I mention agency, there I'm referring to um, the power of the human will, um, human beings' capacity to choose. Um, that again, you know, human beings are not um, sort of biologically determined in, in the, the courses of action that we take in life, um, nor is it the case that, um, you know, God sort of dictates every single um, action that we take, that we, you know, we are endowed with this, uh, this freedom, this capacity to kind of assess and evaluate and, um, and choose. That's what I mean by, by agency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. that's a question. Oh, yeah. Um, this is kind of a big question, mm. and it may be hard to answer, but I'm curious. Go for it. Your take. Uh, so, when we consider things that are socially constructed, like you mentioned the example of pink for girls, blue for boys. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so, I guess I'm thinking about this particularly with gender, but yeah. it can apply to other things. Mm -hmm. How much do we submit to what our cultures? idea of these things is mm -hmm. and how much do we try to like overthrow it because it mm -hmm. might be constricting yeah if that makes sense because sure. i see some people say okay well 
we should have anything that might be a social construct yeah. because it could be constraining mm. other people saying we should just follow the social construct. Yeah. Otherwise, it's somehow rebelling against. And sure. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No. Good question. Um, yeah, and I think I mentioned that you know, so we cannot live without social constructions. Um, um, you know, it would be incredibly burdensome to go through our daily lives uh, critically assessing every single social construct that we participate in. You know, if I woke up and thought, okay, you know, should I wear clothes today or not? Um, you know, am I and am I submitting to an oppressive norm in doing this? That would probably be a little bit of a waste of my time. Um, you know, if I thought, okay, should I, should I use a fork and knife, uh, you know, for this meal, or should I really cast off, you know, this oppressive norm and just use my hands in this, uh, setting that would probably be a little bit of a waste of my time to try to, to deconstruct that, you know, every time I eat lunch, um, in the region atrium, um, if I, uh, thought, okay, should I, um, you know, give, give this new acquaintance, a uh, a handshake or, um, you know, should I, should I reject that? Because that's just a social construction. Um, you get my point. So the, you know, there's certain, there's certain things that, you know, human beings have invented as conventional, um, behaviors that are, they're just, they're kind of neutral, right? They, they basically help us get through the day, <laughs> interact with people, um, you know, have some sense of routine and order in our lives. And they're not particularly, um, oppressive, right? And, and they're, um, you know, there's probably not a compelling reason to sort of, uh, you know, deconstruct and reassess every single one of them. Um, however, you know, there are um, other social constructions. Um, you know, I mentioned the example of, of race. Um, that is not a neutral construct, right? That has actually had, um, you know, an enormously negative impact on people's lives. Um, and so I think, you know, as Christians, um, yeah, it, it's not, it's not a particularly good use of our time. Uh, I mean, maybe in terms of like sort of analysis, um, you know, to, to assess these things, but in terms of where we put our kind of moral or prophetic energy, um, I think that, you know, is, is focusing on <clears throat> social constructs um, that are damaging so social constructs that, um, you know, are, are in violation with biblical principles. Um, so that's what I was talking about. You know, there's certain kind of creational givens that our, um, you know, our social constructions need to submit to, right? Uh, yeah, things like, you know, table manners, language, you know, most of that is not violating um, you know, uh, God's moral law. Um, but say, uh, yeah, you know, again, going back to the example of, of race and the ways in which, um, racial categories have then, uh, been enshrined in, in laws and in, and in how, you know, human rights are allocated, this kind of thing. That's a contract where Christians should say, okay, how, yeah, how did this construct emerge um, you know, does this align with biblical teaching? Obviously not. Therefore, um, this is a construction that, that I should challenge, that I should speak out against, um, that I should um, act against. Um, so does that help? So and basically I'm saying that, the, you know, there's a lot of social constructions that are basically neutral, functional. We can't really live life without them. 
Um, but there's some things that, um, yeah, negatively impact our lives um, or are clearly in violation with biblical um, principles that we should protest. Is that good at your, yeah, do you have a follow-up on that? Well, just quickly, yeah. Like, yeah. I think some, some of those social constructs can even be like kind of a cool or neat, like different expression of culture. That's yeah, kind of interesting exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like, it's interesting how Paul kind of, how he talks about some of these things, like the braided hair thing, for example. Yeah. Like, we don't really understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he was like submitting to some kind of like cultural thing yeah. in that context, even though yeah. it's not like, or at least the way I've understood the interpretation of sure. it. Sure. It's not like everyone can't braid their hair for the rest of Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, and, and that's an important point that, yeah, a lot of these constructs are, are culturally specific um, and, are, and, are, and are varied and um, are not, um, yeah, take on sort of different moral connotations in different places. And so that, I think, you know, that's something that we need to be attentive to, especially as, um, you know, the world is, is globalizing and we're sort of, you know, having increased interaction with people who come from different cultures. Um, that's sort of the best way really to, uh, to break down social constructions is when you encounter people who see the world very differently, right? And it makes you realize um, things that you took for granted are actually, yeah, very different in somebody else's culture. And again, some of those things might be neutral, like whether you eat, eat with chopsticks or a fork and knife um but some things um could be yeah problematic and, and worth um you know thinking and acting on Did you have uh, a question, second, oh yeah julian mm-hmm. uh julia can go because she wants to follow up on this but okay then julian can, yeah can go. yeah um this is an area i've spent a lot of time um thinking about mm. certain topics and and wrestling yeah and i i want to know how do we like, I appreciate people who write about this. Mm. Uh, it seems like people that are not sociologists uh, can respond to mm-hmm. these issues yeah. um, in a very uh, academic mm. and um, lots of statistics, like, lots of mm. things to back them up. Um, so I appreciate reading those kind of writers. Mm. Um, I guess I'm trying to think about how do we deal with this as Christians mm. in terms of like standing up against uh, structures or these constructs that are unbiblical mm. like <clears throat> I see there's a context of relationship like we would have conversations at the mm-hmm. Brie, but I've been to protests I've written letters mm. I um uh, for like the issue of say gender in mm. particular um, I think so much was done at an activist level mm. in terms of legislation mm-hmm. that people are just sort of waking up to what is even going on mm-hmm. at the grassroots level. So yeah. it's almost like people are just like, don't even know how to mm-hmm. approach this. It feels like mm-hmm. it's almost conversation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you can speak to that. Like, mm. Can we dialogue peacefully with mm, mm. people who are mm. activists? And- yeah, I know you think you're thinking specifically about the the issue of of gender and how we. That's what I've been reading. And yeah, in turn to that particular um, conversation about social construction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that. Like the mm-hmm. arms of you know um, um, gender self identification mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. women. 
Yeah. 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 No, that, that is, um, that is a challenging one. And that's definitely uh, the kind of um, very salient uh, yeah, dimension in this whole conversation of, of social construction at the moment. I think one thing specifically in the gender conversation um, that it is valuable for Christians in, in that space um, to be able to, you know, talk about the distinction between what we understand to be creational givens and what is in fact socially constructed. Um, Cause I think sometimes um, in Christian spaces, you know, because we want to push back against some of the current gender ideology, um, we sometimes sort of revert to a position that, um, what do I want to say? Reinforces certain gender norms that maybe aren't necessarily biblical. So I think it's in that sense, you know, it's important to distinguish between, you know, sex and gender <coughs> in, this, in this conversation. And while we can definitely affirm our creational biological givens that should be protected, um, and what are in fact, you know, certain social cultural variations. So I think one thing is just for Christians to be able to be more nuanced in that conversation than they sometimes are. Um, secondly, yeah, you know, in terms of, you know, how do we have productive dialogue? Um, that's difficult because, you know, for a dialogue to work, uh, the other party needs to be open to that dialogue, <laughs> right? And then there are some yeah, there are some spaces, there's some um, institutions or political environments now where that, that dialogue seems almost impossible because there's simply an unwillingness on one or both sides uh, to listen to what the other party is saying. And so in that case, a dialogue breaks down. Um, and in that case, I think, you know, Christians need to continue to... Um, you know, to preach and to teach and to pray and to, um, you know, I think try to try to actually live out and embody the, the goodness of gender distinctions in our own communities. Um, you know, sometimes there's not a willingness to have maybe the public conversations, but we still always have, um, again, you know, the, the agency to, to live out these convictions in our own lives and actually within our own families, churches, social groups, um, to try to be actually living out the beauty of the complementarity between genders. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not as though all hope is, is lost, um, but we, we still have the power to do that. We still have, um, you know, relationships with people who may think differently from us, who can observe, you know, our own lives and the way that we, um, you know, we deal with, uh, with gender in a, a loving and honoring way in our own families and, and communities. So, that's, yeah, that's one thing I would say to that. I mean, the public policy thing, I think, you know, it is important for Christians to continue, um, you know, to be informed, to do research, to, um, you know, to write those letters, to, you know, show up at events, even though, um, you know, sometimes it may feel like, um, it may feel like a losing battle. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value in it to continue, you know, speaking and living out those, those truths. 
Um, so I don't know if that helps, but I, I hear you that it's, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big challenge. Um, but those are, yeah, just a couple of thoughts on that. Okay. Yeah. Julian, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I have a few questions, but, um, thank you for, uh, can you hear me? Okay. I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you for, uh, uh, your presentation. Uh, it was very interesting and, um, so I have a whole lot of thoughts, but, um, um, and, uh, one, I guess one question that hope I'll be able to formulate a question here, but, uh, um, as, as social creatures, um, you know, I, I'm, how old am I? I'm 38. I've only ever existed in society. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple <laughs> times that I, yeah, yeah there's, there's been a couple of times I've been in a remote place, but, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, it's hard for me to understand maybe what exactly isn't a mm -hmm. social construct mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because given that like language and yeah. all the roles that I see and mm -hmm. the influence of media and mm -hmm. church structures and uh, yeah. language, um, mm -hmm. uh, the time period that I exist in, you know, like you, you mentioned the post enlightenment, like, mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, on the one hand, I'm comfortable saying that everything's socially constructed, mm -hmm. but I don't mean that as in uh, that there is no objective reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think I would reject that God created some kind of uh, order to, mm -hmm. to reality that we should uh, be thoughtful about. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh yeah, I'm I'm led to be comfortable to say hey, everything's socially constructed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I climb a mountain and I have uh, this uh, feeling, and the way mm -hmm. I the label I put on the feeling is uh, forgiveness. Well, mm -hmm. where does that word come from? Like what, that that mm -hmm. comes from, you know, the society and and the church and all kinds of associations that um, I've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know if you if you can. Uh, uh, so you're sort of asking you know, kind of what what the limits of the social construction of reality are, given that it seems like actually a huge amount of our experience is social construction. So what what isn't? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, just uh, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe yeah, maybe maybe that is my question. Like, mm -hmm. what are the limits of social construction? Mm -hmm. Because it it just seems uh, like we shouldn't be paranoid that like mm. against that we should, that should mm. be very easily embraced. And yeah. um, I guess maybe I just mm -hmm. don't understand what the, mm -hmm. what's believed to be at stake or. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a, a couple of things that I would say on that. Um, one around um, biology, one around history and one around um, sort of revealed biblical truths. Um, so in terms of biology, you know, I think, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are certain, uh, you know, objective realities, um, to, 
um, you know, the way that plants are, the way that animals are, the way that human beings are, um, that we cannot and should not transcend or reinvent. Um, and I think, I guess one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, you know, more recently in terms of, uh, you know, advances in technology, um, there, there's a kind of new construct, a sort of newer construction of, of a human being, um, almost as a, a machine that can sort of transcend, transcend disease, transcend, you know, even mortality, um, you know, th through these, um, you know, te technological advances. Um, and I think that's something that <clears throat> that's a kind of social construction of what it means to be human uh, that Christians should push against on the basis of biblical teaching. Um, you know, I think as Christians, we need to affirm, um, you know, that, that we are created in, in bodies that are frail, that are finite, um, and, and that are, you know, are submitted to, to God as the, the one who gives and takes life. And so I think, um, yeah, there's particular trends in, in, in how humanity is, is constructed, um, that we need to resist on the basis of a biblical and biological truth. So that's one thing that comes to my mind. Um, another thing is, is how we understand history. So, uh, again, like an extreme, <clears throat> you know, an extreme, but not, not a small segment of people, um, who adhere to social constructivism would say that, um, you know, all of knowledge, um, and even, you know, all of our sort of conception of history is a social construct, um, that we cannot actually know objectively what has happened in history, that, that, you know, all of our historical narratives are themselves products of our own perceptions, biases, prejudices, selectivity. Um, and again, I think um, from a, a Christian perspective, uh, you know, our faith does hinge on particular historical events um, and our acceptance of, um, you know, the biblical revelation of, of how those uh, events came about. Um, and, um, you know, something like the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, for example, um, that's something that we hold to as, um, you know, a historical event that has profound, you know, objective and subjective implications for people. Um, and so on that basis, you know, we have to reject um, you know, an extreme social constructivist position that says we cannot actually know anything um, with any certainty about objective history because we're, you know, completely blinded by our, um, you know, our biases and our, and our, our sort of socially constructed ways of, of seeing things. Um, so that's where, um, yeah, there are kind of certain stakes in the ground, uh, I think, in terms of history, biology, um, and moral principles too, right? I mean, there would be a lot of sociologists, anthropologists who would then, you know, veer into the territory of saying, okay, you know, because reality is socially constructed, um, moral norms are socially constructed, right? That's that's a kind of, um, you know, next step um, in the social constructivist philosophy is that, okay, you know, um, our understandings of what's, of what's right and wrong um, are just human inventions and they're relative, they vary between cultures, nobody can adjudicate. And I think, you know, again, that's an area where Christians have to say, well, actually, you know, there are certain um, principles, truths, commands revealed to us in scripture, in scripture um, that do actually take precedence over our 
um, over our social norms. Um, so th those are a couple of things that come to my mind about the sort of uh, the limits of a, a social constructivist stance. Hopefully that. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, the... Um, Yeah, I think you. I think one of the things that I heard you clearly say is that uh, we can't uh, eliminate uh, uh, a claim to objective reality. That, mm -hmm. uh, that social constructivism. Uh, and I, I think I I agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I I haven't thought about the technological, mm -hmm. biological piece that you mentioned about. Uh, <laughs> like merging with with machine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, and there are you know there are certain avenues going that way you know in terms of artificial intelligence, um, all kinds of, of technologies that you know people do genuinely hope and believe will help us you know transcend um, you know some of these these biological uh, limits that we have. So it is you know it's not just a kind of hypothetical issue. Um, it is it is live. Yeah, I have to think yeah, more about what, what I think about that. Um, mm. The, I'm sorry, one, one other question I had was uh, maybe related to that biological piece, um, then I'll stop talking, is uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist, mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard for me to understand exactly when you say that race is not biological, like mm -hmm. it's skin color, eye shape, hair, those seem like biological things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm confused what you mean. Yeah. Why it's not biological. I, sure. mean, I understand like, it can be used yeah. to press and, and mm -hmm. control and label and disenfranchise. Yeah. I totally understand that, but mm -hmm. uh, how is it not biological? Yeah, no, sure. No, that, that's a good question. That's a question that lots of people have. Um, yeah, so to clarify on that, um, you're absolutely right that there is uh, you know, genetic variation between human beings. And, you know, some of that manifests in things like, you know, skin color, hair texture, eye shape, et cetera. So yes, absolutely. Um, those variations do exist. Um, and, uh, you know, which is, um, you know, shaped by our genetic makeup. Um, the point that I'm making is that those, um, and, but I should say that, you know, not human beings share 99.9% .9 of our genome with all other human beings. Um, so that variation is confined to that last 0.1%. Um, but the most important thing is that um, the variations that we have genetically, they do not correspond to these categories that we have constructed. And actually, um, you know, if you look at the biology, the genetics, it's entirely possible for, um, you know, two people who we would racially categorized as black um, to actually have more genetic biological variation between them um, than somebody who we would categorize as black and somebody who we would categorize as white. Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, these variations did not kind of neatly map onto racial categories. And um, it's also worth thinking about that, you know, different, if you look at sort of census categories in different nations, they're not the same, right? Um, you know, if you look at the census categories in uh, Brazil, <clears throat> they have sort of different kind of shades of 
of brown and yellow and indigenous and uh, mixed. Um, you know, in the U.S., we tend to have uh, the categories of um, you know white, black, Asian, then a sort of ethnic category of Hispanic. Um, in the U.K., um, there's different categories um, with uh, sort of South Asians lumped together as one, and then sort of separate. Um, uh, you know, East Asian or Arab. So there's also, you know, these, the reality is these categories have been created by different nation states um, in ways that, again, you know, don't map on to the objective kind of biological variation between human beings. Um, I think there's one other thing that I wanted to say on that. You're um, saying the variations uh You're saying the variations uh, are observed differently by different people. Yeah, so people are kind of clustered differently in different contexts, um, which right. again challenges the idea that there's like objectively a white race, a black race, a red race, a yellow race, right? Different countries and different times in history have categorized people differently um, based on different sort of interpretations of both visible characteristics sort of alleged kind of moral characteristics um, in ways that, um, you know, even if you look at the US census, for example, and how it's changed over time, um, you know, it basically started out sort of white, black and indigenous. And for a long time, there was a sort of, um, you know, one drop principle where to be counted um, black, you know, you just had to have a very small fraction of African ancestry to then be sort of lumped into this whole category, which then justified, you know, your enslavement. Um, so sociologists would say that um, these categories have been constructed by, by governments um, in ways that have helped to kind of, um, you know, organize and control their populations in ways that are sort of politically, economically beneficial. And they, um, uh, you know, they, they do not correspond um, to the actual, you know, genetic or cultural realities um, of human beings. Yeah. Okay, so we're just going to uh, move it to um, Irving, and then we'll go back to the room, because I know, okay. Irving, you've been waiting for a while. Okay, I just wanted to make one little point. Uh, I think it's worth noting that Peter Berger uh, and his wife, Brigitte, were both Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Devout Christians. So mm -hmm. that's okay. all I want to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. That's, thank you. Yeah, that's that's an important observation. Yes, Peter Berger was was a committed Christian. Um, so he did not see his his work as um, in opposition to the church. In fact, he wrote he wrote another interesting book called The Sacred Canopy, which is basically you know trying to help the church understand the ways in which it's been so culturally shaped by uh, modernity in the West, and it was his way of trying to kind of get the church to, to wake up to this fact and actually try to live in a more, more distinctive way. So yeah, that is an important, important point. Thank you. Does anyone have any question here? I wanted to ask mm -hmm. about the three authors and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about them? Like what kind of languages did they speak? Mm. What did mm. they read? Oh, okay. Because I, I, of course I have yeah. My own thoughts, but I, yeah. I want you to, to speak into those because where did they get all that? Yeah. 
Are you meaning um, the first three that yes. I mentioned? Yes. Yeah. So um, they were based in Western Europe, in in Germany and in France. So those were the, the languages that they were working in. Did they, um, did they read Latin? Did ooh. they read the Bible? Um, yes, they, they definitely were familiar with the Bible. Yes. Um, and in, in fact, Durkheim had um, Jewish heritage. Okay, there you go. And um, all, I mean, all three of them wrote about religion. Yeah. Um, you know, and, I mean, in that era, obviously, the, you know, Europe had not secularized nearly as much as it has now. Um, and so, you know, as a, an educated person, a member of society, um, you're very likely to know something about, um, you know, the Christian tradition. And um, so all three of them, yes, were, were familiar um, with the Christian tradition, um, you know, had exposure to that and, and wrote about religion in their, so in their work. Mm -hmm. by, by that. So a lot yeah. of people, like I didn't know myself, mm -hmm. that even when we speak English, mm -hmm. we are really shaped by the Greeks and the Romans, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. a lot of our words, that's yeah. why I asked you about agency, yeah, yeah. and also sociology. Mm -hmm, These mm -hmm. are Greek Latin mm -hmm. words mm -hmm. that are put together yeah. that we embrace as English, mm -hmm. but 20% of what we speak is Greek-based, <laughs> but we have yeah. no idea yeah. where, our, where this idea of sociology mm -hmm. is shaped. Mm -hmm. It's Mekelzadek. Mm. It goes back in time. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. have, you know, we are reaping the benefits yeah. of all the intelligence. Mm. So when you go to church and you read the Nicene Creed, mm. those were the early Christians that mm -hmm. were marked by the thousands mm. to put together the Nicene Creed. And we have no clue how they prayed and whether we look like them or not. Mm. We have evolved into something totally different mm. than what they were. Mm. Which is why it's uh, important so, to study history, isn't it? Exactly. To try to, to try to trace these things you, and understand our, our roots. Yeah. So if you read the mm. history mm. and start to understand, you will understand, hey, yeah. I'm, 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 these words don't mm -hmm. come from mm. England, they mm. come from Norway, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, and how those were influenced, how everything was shaped mm -hmm. was sociology. So mm. sociology, Mm. has been around since time memorial. It's just in the last 200 years, mm. we quantified them mm. and made them a study. Mm. And, you know, we, because yeah. we are so Greek in mm. our mind, mm. we are so intellectual, mm. right? We yeah. love, you know, I have mm. some Greek heritage and I understand <laughs> very well, but, you know, yeah. but and that's what we do. We yeah. sit down and back mm. in the church. If you flip around, mm. the church is not very educated. Mm. If you look at the structure of the modern church mm. today, it is not educated. Mm. So the people come and receive the gospel, mm. but most pastors are not pastors, they're preachers mm. because they don't know how to how to socially even connect with their people. Mm. So there you have, so I'm a member of several churches. So I always joke mm. that I go to one for worshiping God the Father, one God the Son, one God the Holy Spirit. Oh dear. <laughs> I need, you know, the, the three scoops mm. to be mm. able to really get, mm. you know, what is it, mm. right? Mm. Um, that mm -hmm. 
Christianity is all about. Mm. It's more than mm. just going to church. It's, mm. it's community. And yeah. obviously you have it here, right? So community works, right? Because, <laughs> you know, it builds yeah. people up. So that's that's, those are social structures mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. existed in the Jewish communities mm -hmm. all around the world. Mm -hmm. That's why Jews moved around. If we talk about the Old Testament, mm -hmm. moved around all around the world to other people mm -hmm. within their communities because mm -hmm. they spoke the same language, sure. had the same habits. Yeah, a community. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly powerful force, isn't it? And I think it's, yeah, it's important to try to, to understand the roots of our of our community, our, our identity, how it's been shaped by, by scripture, by history, by culture. Um, I think it is, yeah, it is important for the church yeah. to be, to be educated and to. So um, for example, the Holy Family, mm. when they left Israel because of the massacre, mm. where did they go? To Egypt. And why did they go there? Because there were colonies of Jews mm. all over that could mm -hmm. speak Hebrew and Greek. Yeah. Because they were fluent in mm. two languages. Mm. So that's that's mm. social structures. Mm -hmm. They were already had yeah. those. Sure. Yeah, that, that shaped their their patterns of migration and the decisions that they made. And yeah, um, yeah we need to need to pay attention to those things. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, we have two questions online. Okay. Yvonne, I'll let you go. And then uh, we'll, I'll ask size questions. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Jessa, very, um, very interesting uh, lecture. Thank you very much for addressing us tonight. I really enjoyed it. I found it to be very thought provoking. Glad. Um, what I have to ask and uh, query about is mm. more historical. Mm -hmm. And this is, I guess, where sociology and history kind of collide. Mm -hmm. And that is when looking at the whole racial thing, mm -hmm. this is, if you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. It's just going to throw it out there. And mm -hmm. if you want to say pass, go ahead. Um, when you look at the Barbary Coast, the mm -hmm. pirates, mm -hmm. North Africa, around uh, Morocco, Algeria, um, uh, Libya, um, over 400 years or so, they attacked Europe mostly mm -hmm. and uh, made slaves mm -hmm. of uh, many, many Europeans, thousands. Mm -hmm. Like they take villages mm -hmm. and bring them back to North Africa and mm -hmm. ransom them if people could afford the price. Mm -hmm. But most of them were made slaves. Mm -hmm. And historically, more people were... Europeans were made slaves in North Africa mm. than Africans that were brought over to America. And um, a lot of people aren't aware of that. Uh, now, of course, one other issue here, um, you know, is that uh, many African slaves drowned. That's mm -hmm. a reality that so people don't really have an exact number, possibly. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to um, people that are quote unquote Caucasian looking mm -hmm. uh, that were taken to North Africa, there were thousands and thousands. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm wondering why uh, in history we don't talk about that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure. No, it's a good question. And um, it is, 
yeah, it's important to recognize that slavery is a is an ancient practice um, that has been present, has been practiced in, in you know, many different civilizations over time. Um, so it's not as though, you know, slavery was, was uniquely invented uh, in the modern era. And it's, you know, it's certainly not the case that, um, you know, it's only, you know, white people who have enslaved black people ever in history, you know, as, as you're pointing out, um, yeah, slavery was practiced by North African traders. Um, you know, slavery was practiced in the ancient Middle East. Slavery has been practiced as, um, you know, a consequence of taking prisoners of war or people falling into debt and, you know, all, all kinds of reasons for, for thousands of, of years. Um, I think, um, the reason why the transatlantic slave trade, uh, you know, takes prominence in terms of, um, you know, a lot of historical and sociological material um, is that it did, you know, emerge in a kind of this, this distinct era of, of global discovery. Um, and it, it, it occurred, um, you know, at a scale and at a level of uh, brutality um, that was unprecedented. Um, and it also, um, you know, because um, the, the transatlantic slave trade also was emerging at a time where you had this new kind of so-called, you know, scientific approach um, to assessing human beings and placing human beings in racial categories. Um, and so, you know, a lot of ancient practices of slavery uh, they were not race based, um, you know, they were they were based on, again, as I mentioned, things like, um, you know, people being uh, prisoners of war or falling into debt um, or other reasons. And, um, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on all forms of ancient slavery, but my understanding is that um, typically, you know, there, there are opportunities to um, to work your way out of slavery, to be freed. Um, you know, to pay off your debts after a certain point. Um, and that, you know, even if we look at the practice of, of slavery in ancient Israel, um, you know, biblical law offers a lot of um, protections um, for people who were slaves. Now, in the case of the transatlantic <clears throat> slave trade, um, that was very explicitly justified using this sort of su pseudoscientific uh, racial ideology that was very much based on skin color. Um, and also, you know, relocated um, African slaves um, to a, essentially an almost sort of subhuman uh, status um, who, you know, did not have any rights in terms of property, uh, family, um, you know, freedom of movement, um, you know, opportunity to sort of to work um, their way out of slavery. So I think, you know, a lot of historians and, and sociologists would say um, that there were certain you know, qualitative um, differences in, in the practice of, of transatlantic slavery relative um, to other forms of, of slavery that have been practiced in different historical areas and in different eras in different parts of parts of the world. But it's, it, you know, it's, I think you're, you're right to raise the point that slavery in itself is not a unique institution, um, that it has been practiced elsewhere. And that, you know, that is important for historians 
um, to recognize and understand. Um, so it's, it's not something that should be sort of, you know, ignored or swept under the table, but is also, um, you know, merits, um, you know, both academic and moral reflection. Elon, did you have anything to follow up? Yeah. Um, well, the Irish were slaves. Mm -hmm. Many Irish people were slaves in early America. Mm -hmm. uh, my own people, uh, the Acadians, were mm -hmm. treated like slaves by the British mm -hmm. and um, basically yeah. were confined, basically yeah. arrested, put on boats. Yeah. Men and women were separated and sent mm -hmm. south. Yeah. Families were broken up. Yeah. And um, the Acadian experience. Yeah. Uh, it's very uh, hmm. uh, horrible. Yeah, um, and other other people as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it, it as well, a lot of Africans kept slaves mm -hmm. in Africa mm -hmm. and then sold them to uh, Portuguese, Dutch, yeah. and English, Spanish. Yeah. You know, um, slave owners. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So you know, it's very complex. Yeah, and like, it is and complex. I like that yeah. you do admit that mm -hmm. slavery is ancient. Mm -hmm. That is true. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting that you, you mentioned the Irish. Um, the English did uh, sort of racialize the Irish into a distinct race. And actually, it's interesting if you look at there's some, um, you know, there's some old images where where sort of Irish and black faces are almost equated in sort of um, certain uh, English propaganda. So they were, for a time, considered a, a sort of separate racial group um, and, and inferior in terms of their moral, intellectual capacities uh, relative to the English. So um, that's a whole other, you know, there's a whole other kind of part of the racialization discussion that looks at how um, racial categories can actually be invented even, uh, you know, within people who actually look quite similar. Um, you know, what happened in Rwanda is an, an example, example of that. Um, so yes, it, it's a, it's a very complex issue. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> I have a question from Sai. Mm -hmm. If we are, um, what parts of sociology research align or oppose to the idea of universal moral law in humans? Mm -hmm. You spoke on it briefly while answering another question, wondering if you'd expand on that. Mm. Um, Well, I mean, so most, hmm, that's a good question. Most sociologists would say, would assert that they, they don't kind of have a, an explicit position on universal moral laws. Um, you know, most sociologists would say that they're, you know, they're interested in, in how human beings um, you know, behave and, and justify their own moral positions. Um, but most sociologists would not be explicit in their own work about whether they themselves uh, ascribe to the idea of universal moral laws. Um, I think, you know, hmm. As, as Christians, you know, we, we might say that uh, perhaps some, you know, some of the sociological research around um, 
not so much the research itself around gender and sexuality, but some of the ideological convictions that drive uh, the topics that um, sociologists are interested in, or maybe the, even more so the particular public policy applications um, that sociologists advocate for on the basis of their research, um, that in some cases, um, what sociologists advocate for is, is not in a line with, with biblical teaching. And I think, again, you know, probably where we see that most at the moment is around um, marriage, family, sexuality, that, um, you know, there is a, a subset of sociologists who very much, um, you know, are, are keen to promote sort of alternative family arrangements, um, keen to promote um, you know, total sort of sexual um, autonomy in terms of identity and behavior. Um, and that, you know, they're clear in their own sort of public policy applications of their research, um, that they're, they're, they're wanting to promote a society, um, you know, that does not reflect, um, you know, things that most Christians would, would say are, um, are sort of biblical principles around um, marriage and sexuality. So that's, that's one area where I think probably in the contemporary era, um, we do see divergence. Um, but, you know, I would say that, um, that, you know, there's also a lot of sociologists who are interested um, in, you know, improving education systems so that kids from all different social class backgrounds um, can excel in school. Um, or there's, you know, there's sociologists who um, want to think about, you know, how, how public housing is, um, is sort of uh, arranged um, to, you know, to improve social relationships and um, human flourishing. And I think, you know, those are very much, um, you know, from my perspective, you know, issues that, that align with um, biblical teaching about um, human dignity and human relationships and, um, you know, promoting the, the flourishing of people. So I think there's a lot of variation. It's, it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to generalize on, on that. I think it really depends on what kind of part of sociology you're thinking about and, um, you know, what some of the, the kind of social policy applications are of, um, of sociological research. Yeah. They gave you a thumbs up. Huh? It gave you a thumbs, thumbs up. up. Okay. Which sociological Which means... I think was a good thing. I'm sure <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not Greek, so I'll take that as a, as a positive. Yeah. Yeah. Do some of these universal values um, dictate what kind of research can be done or can be found? Um, and we were even discussing earlier just yeah. how some longitudinal studies aren't mm -hmm. uh, done because they're, they're not, um, mm -hmm. maybe they go against the cultural yeah. values and so it's not as if sociology is done in a vacuum no um but but even yeah. the presuppositions control what can be mm -hmm. studied and what can be said yeah for sure yeah i mean sociology you know again it's i want to stress you know it's a very diverse discipline there's lots of different kinds of people who are doing sociological reason research for different reasons um but i think you know in general sociology, um, again, which I know best in, in the U.S., is um, sociologists tend to be very politically progressive. Um, and so, you know, tend to have, you know, as individuals, um, you know, ideas of what a good society looks like, um, you know, aspirations for themselves and their friends that, that map on to a, a more 
um, you know, leftist political ideology. Um, and so that what that means is that, um, uh, you know, research that kind of reinforces those um, ideals or those public policy proposals um, is probably more common um, and more uh, um, more easily embraced by the wider sociological community um, than research topics or um, public policy applications that uh, don't align with a politically progressive um, agenda. So, you know, even though, um, yes, sociologists, you know, study all kinds of things, there definitely are, are kind of norms within the discipline and, you know, political commitments within the discipline that shape the kinds of questions that people ask, um, which, you know, in turn, um, you know, shape what people find and shape what people um, propose on the basis of their, of their findings. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to like the undergraduate level in university? Cause I hear so much about, you know, people go to the university and they're deconstructed and it seems like this is in socio like mm -hmm. the more aggressive form of mm -hmm. sociology seems to be in every discipline. And mm -hmm. I don't know that the professors are very nuanced mm -hmm. and the kids, mm -hmm. The young people don't necessarily have the critical thinking skills. Yeah. Um, and everybody sort of, at least at UVic, everybody mm -hmm. has to think the same thing. If you mm -hmm. don't think the same thing, then. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, this seems like mm -hmm. maybe not a good use of sociology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, you know, sociology at its best uh, should equip people for critical thinking. I mean, sociology has a lot of methodological tools that should actually enable people to get to concrete realities uh, of what people actually, you know, think and do and why. Um, you know, there are, yeah, ways of thinking in sociology, ways of kind of systematically coding data that should actually equip students to be able to do careful analysis. Um, you know, a good research methods class in sociology should train students um, to ask good questions, to really, you know, thoroughly assess the existing literature, um, you know, to consider issues of, of, um, of bias, um, to, to kind of, you know, triangulate different sources of information, um, you know, to think about how the concrete data does actually relate to these bigger, you know, narratives and theories. Um, so I think sociology at, at its best can be a very powerful tool in equipping people for, um, you know, for critical thinking, for analysis, for research, um, you know, for developing their own, you know, evidence-based opinions on things. Um, however, um, yeah, because of the fact that, uh, yeah, as you, say, you know, sociology itself is shaped by its own social cultural norms, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, like every other discipline. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, because of the fact that sociology in general does have these particular political commitments, um, it is often the case, that, you know, those are, you know, in some way expressed by the professor um, in ways that then may, you know, sway students towards uh, thinking a certain way or respecting certain theorists over others, 
Um, and so I think, obviously, you know, there, there's no way for a professor to be unbiased, um, you know, and it's fine for people, professors to have their particular political opinions. Um, but I think, yeah, the best sociology professors, again, you know, push their students to think in a genuinely critical way and, and are open to ideological diversity in the classroom. Unfortunately, that's not always the case in practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just have one final comment. Uh -huh. I think that we should wrap it up. We usually close at nine, mm -hmm. unless someone is burning with a... I just wanna say thank you uh, for the talk. I was just thinking that good sociology is really a prophetic task mm -hmm. that, um, that maybe even the church may have failed in identifying mm. certain social ills and evils yeah. that sociologists mm -hmm. picked up mm -hmm. because Christians did fail yeah. to live out the full, full biblical truth. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it's a good corrective for the church mm -hmm. to start paying attention to it. Yeah. Um, but we do have that, that we can go back to biblical revelation. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just reading Hosea 4 the other day, and it said, you know, when your daughters and daughter-in-laws are caught in prostitution, don't charge them. Hmm. Don't accuse them, because you men are the ones who have been with the harlots hmm. and created this whole institution hmm. where, they've, hmm. where they've turned the young ladies to this. Wow. And so it seems that what Hosea is doing is a sociological act hmm. yeah. on behalf hmm. of God's, hmm. you know, um, very word. Yeah. And so it seems like... Christian sociologists are mm. really being called into a prophetic tax, mm. maybe in a setting that is not very welcome, but so, so needed. And so I just yeah. thank you that you laid it out mm. so clearly what mm. sociology is and certain very, the, the very important issues, the big ideas that we mm. need to hold on to. So you really led us well into that. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening.